The Incomparable. Number 445. February 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we are returning to the films of Hayao Miyazaki. This time it is Howl's Moving Castle, a film from actually kind of late in the list of of Miyazaki. I think this might be the most recent, 2004. And uh, joining me to talk about Howl's Moving Castle, of course, John Syracuse is here. Hello. There is a method to my madness, which I will explain oh okay a good little bit later yeah in, in this episode or will that be like the big denouement at the end of the last no, Miyazaki in, in, episode? in this episode i have i have a small opening statement and i'll explain why we're watching House right. Castle so now. everybody stay tuned john's opening statement is coming up in a little bit but first oh let me introduce the other panelists <laughs> moises chuyan is here hello i feel like after this i won't be able to turn back into a human again it, it could be we may all be birds in the end uh shannon sunworth is here hello hola frikis and Steve Lutz is here. Hello, Steve Lutz. Huh. I hate potatoes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Miyazaki, Howl's Moving Castle, based on the book by Diana Wynne-Jones. Hey, uh, Diana Wynne-Jones. Yeah, that's right. And there's, it, it is a, like Kiki, uh, kind of delightfully. Uh, it, it's interesting to see Miyazaki's art style when uh, occasionally he's not depicting Japan because um, you get to see his vision of sort of like a somewhat generic european village which is a different style from his uh his pastoral japan art yeah the, this movie it's is kind of the yeah. it's kind of the final fantasy six of uh miyazaki movies. i don't know what that means <laughs> <laughs> mashup victorian steampunk yeah, okay you know airships and uh cities that look like they've been around for a hundred years and have a, a a lot of detail put into them and clockwork things and uh, a, a weird mashup of yeah, all kinds I of think stuff that's right my son kept saying well this this is set in the future because they've got those weird flying machines and i'm like <laughs> is it because look at the rest of it it doesn't feel like the future to me you're you're exactly getting to my uh my very small opening statement. all right john hit us with your opening statement uh so why are we watching house women castle now like why uh why not watch it earlier the reason i put this way towards the back of the list of movies because we're running out now i think we only have like four or five more to go um is because not just because it chronologically comes later, uh, although it's part of it, uh, it's because this movie is like a remix of elements from past movies that we've already talked about. So you, you guys already mentioned the alt Europe from Kiki, where it's European but strangely inflected type city. You've got the flying machines from Castle in the Sky, mm-hmm. complete with little flappy paddles that come out of, of the sides of them. You've got the war machines, the big metal war machines, and anti militarism vibe from Nausicaa. You've got the regular person uh, in a world of strange creatures and magic from Spirited Away. And even the music is like a straight up blend of Spirited Away and Kiki. So I feel like to fully grok this movie, you need to have seen all those movies before. And we have. So we are ready to go. And the final bit is, uh, I feel like this movie, not to spoil my final judgments, but this movie is kind of like uh, Miyazaki preparing for a movie he's not quite ready to make yet. Like it, it's it's I mean we and the movie that we haven't yet reviewed and we probably will talk about in the future, but seeing this on its own without seeing the movie that I'm talking about maybe it stands on its own. But once you see that later movie, you're like oh, I see what he was going for with Howls and didn't quite get there. But it is definitely its own thing. John, you're telling me I've done it all wrong. This is the very first Miyazaki movie I've ever seen. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> Well, that is, I mean, that's the thing about, so I hear a lot of people like, oh, movie X was the first Miyazaki movie I ever saw. And 
there are good movies to start with, but really, no matter where you start, it's probably going to be weird. Uh, and it's just a matter. Of, it's just a matter of maybe not quite this weird. Yeah, it's just a matter of how weird it's going to be. I'm on the other end of the spectrum because this is the only Miyazaki directed film that I had not seen. Wow! Oh, wow! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the only one I hadn't watched. I had noticed how much of a mishmash, how much of a melting pot of Miyazaki this movie was, and and now very curious exactly how much of the skeleton of the Diana Wynne Jones novel still exists in this thing. Yeah, I looked that up because I was curious too because I'm like the mm-hmm. book can't be like this, can it? So I, the book is much more coherent. Like I, if you look at the little like I mean, Wikipedia summary or whatever, <laughs> all the elements are there, but it's a much more coherent story. Like it starts with the setting and, and the framework and the relationship, but then quickly just veers off into Miyazaki mm-hmm. land and it's like, all right, well, never mind. <laughs> in watching this, I was thinking, I bet the I bet I know what's in the book, right? Which is the 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 outline of this is what the book is but you know Miyazaki's like well okay I'll take the structure you know the bones of this book and then I'm gonna make a Miyazaki movie because that's who I am right like and and uh, that's just that was is what struck me about it it's it's um because it, it does feel like I mean we've seen so many of these John you're right like having put in in the uh, time with the other ones um one of the things that is delightful is how uh, how much Miyazaki is just gonna Miyazaki? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the so Shannon, you have all this to look forward to, but like mm-hmm. the weather, the wind, the flying machines, like so much of this is just this is what he loves. Like the countryside, um, kind of the the quirky kind of quirky magic is is a part of this it is a fusion of of a bunch of these different movies i had i i've only seen this once before watching it for this and having seen kiki's delivery service a million times i am struck by the uh the kikiness of it in a way because we have sophie who you know she gets turned into an old lady so it's a little bit different but it's still like a a character who is uh kind of like inserted into this really wacky magical world um and it's extra wacky because it's got even weirder wacky stuff from uh you know that of the kind we've seen in other miyazaki movies so it is is a fascinating combination of all those things and then at center of course is howl the magician who is you know so many delightful little touches in here the magician who has that the house has the little switch so you can have different doors which i I think is really neat i I definitely have doctor who vibe both times i watched this movie that it's a little Mm -hmm. like that it's like oh it's a it's a magic guy who has a a magic box that is basically bigger on the inside and the doors open in different places and all of that but i like i like the touches like he's not one magician he's two magicians and that they have that moment that comes to nothing in the end which is like hmm the king has summoned both of the magicians to go to the castle right how do we do that (laughs) and it's just like it's kind of funny and absurd three magicians because they're aware of the existence of howl as well Well, so right that's true too dragon jenkins which is a rather pedestrian wizard name if i've ever heard one (laughs) he's got two storefronts i guess for more common storefront magic yeah that's an example of how this movie has lots of plot threads that it just like yeah. it throws them out <laughs> there drops. but it's not interested in them and that's you know i'm glad i looked up the book because like in the book uh the, the things that are the same are the family relationships are like set out in the book so there's uh sophie there's her sister who works at the bakery letty and there's another sister who's younger in the book and the relationship between the three sisters is important in the book because two of them swap freaky friday style because they want different oh, no. lives from each other right so that's one thing and then the second 
uh, part that blends in with that is Howl and the Castle and Calcifer and the Curse. That's it. Like, that's the book as far as the outline. But now just think of everything else this movie adds on top of that. It's not that interested in the sisters, although one of them appears. It's interested in Howl and Calcifer, but then it adds all sorts of stuff on top of that. And the, the Witch of the Waste is in the mix, too. But how her plot line resolves versus her being just a regular antagonist, it is... Kiki, at least, it's like, there's a witch, she has adventures, I'm going to do a Miyazaki-style adventures, but it still is a witch that has adventures, we're going to follow her through. In this movie, it's just one thing after the other. There's no real time to dwell on any one thing, because we're on to the next thing. Yeah, it, it, it was very interesting, yeah, trying to watch this thing through, because as you said, you know, tons of little plot lines seem to get started, and then we never really circle back to them, or things never really get explained. And yet, the only time I threw up my hands the first time around was when um, when the scarecrow got revealed as the missing prince. Because um, <laughs> it, watching the dub the first time, I missed the background chatter that explained that he was even missing in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't there. They they don't. It's just the three guys in the background reading the newspaper, and they don't mention anything about it. Okay, well, okay, then I I didn't miss it because when I rewatched uh, the subtitle version, the subtitles included their conversation and explained what was going on there. The big um, uh, inciting incident uh, that made Miyazaki uh, even reluctant to accept the Academy Award for Spirit Away was the beginning of the Iraq War. And that is where I... um, He's gone on the record saying that a lot of his direct diversions uh, from the novel and the reasons that he wanted uh, to take this uh, source material and shape it to his own um, aims... That's 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 what his starting point was and where I think a lot of these plot threads that get just unceremoniously dropped. Um, that's that's, uh, you know, he goes, oh, yeah, I have to use that thing. I have to resolve this, I guess. OK, so, uh, uh, yeah, I'll pick up that thing that I didn't really establish about the prince uh, and yeah, whatever. It'll work. Who cares? Yeah, that, and that's generally his way of, of plotting most things, just kind of the shambling thing that goes along. But if he has a clear vision of the story, because remember he's writing the, the screenplay plays for a lot of these things too if he has a clear vision and a strong story and character through the whole thing it follows it through and it, it, it leads where it leads but if it's just kind of lots of elements on the table here some of them are not going to get the treatment they deserve but like that's part of the that's, that's part of the whimsy of miyazaki mm. that there are lots of things happening and they're all delightful and pretty and entertaining but you know not everything is super important and not everything is resolved and you get the idea that the story continues, uh, you know, writ large, even after the movie's over, because there are many more things that continue to happen. And so it does for for some reason, it doesn't bother me uh, that much in this movie. I'm like, I'm willing to just go with the flow. And, and yeah, yeah. And the uh, like the, to give an example of the whole the uh, the, the war angle, like his, the anti-war, anti-militarism stuff. I mentioned it coming from Nausicaa because there's, that's a big, strong thread in that movie of uh her not wanting the you know she just wants to live in her valiant farm doesn't want these war machines and doesn't understand why everyone's fighting each other so on and so forth and this one the uh the woman uh comes back to the hat store the oh, sophie's mom comes back from the hat store from kingsbury and then shows the new hat she got it's like it's all the it's all the rage in kingsbury which is an on-the-nose name and the hat has cannons on it i mean right. it's not it's not subtle <laughs> but it's also not dwelled upon if you and if you if you blink you might miss the fact that her hat literally has guns poking out of it like that's the level miyazaki is working at here it's like look at my beautiful hat Look at the cannons. Later, we'll say more about how war is bad. But in the meantime, Sophie's got a curse and she's an old lady. 
Yeah, Miyazaki always does drop those plot threads, um, you know, and and it's, that's not unusual. I feel like he does it a whole lot more here yeah. than he does in any of the others that we've seen, uh, at least as part of this podcast. So much so that the end is just like this, oh, well, there's so many <laughs> plot threads. The movie ends. I've got to clean them up. So, oh, uh, that's a prince. Uh, Grandma is okay. Uh, Howl loves her. She loves Howl. Um, Howl's first go away, back. But maybe there's some really disturbing thing that's going to happen later between the witch and the prince that we probably don't want to think about too hard. And uh, everybody's happy. Oh, and then we're going to go to Suleiman and she's cool with it too. So it's all good. Yeah, and I think that's like I said. I think that's what a part of what I find delightful about Miyazaki movies is just like uh, you just pop into this world and this life and look around and follow a bunch of things for a while, and then you pop back out. But and that's why I also like the credit sequences where they show life continuing. But that's not the end of all the stories that there will be. That's just your time in this world is over. Hopefully, something that has happened has been resolved in some way. But rest <laughs> assured that these people all have lives that continue long after you stop viewing them potentially into the credits and it's fine um, well and but, and what he chooses chooses to show us is what he's interested in i always feel that about his movies that there are there are lots of interesting things happening elsewhere or things that that there's more detail or more explanation and he just doesn't care and so you know it's like yeah that's probably happening over there i find that uh, happens a lot in these movies where i i I just think all right that's you just kind of go with it and i i say that in a good-natured way um because i do agree like in miyazaki movies honestly at this point part of the delight is that sometimes things happen and you go huh okay and then you just go with it and sometimes it's a cultural disconnect i feel i feel that in some of his movies where there's something that i i get strongly suggested that this is something that a japanese audience will understand and that i'm completely baffled by but other times i look at it and i just think narratively he just didn't care or wasn't interested and when he does toss off these things or wrap up these plot lines or just kind of like mention something and leave it dangling he does it with this kind of delight and uh and just light touch that i i end up forgiving it generally as like all right like whatever like (laughs) i I, i'm here for the ride i'm here for what you want to show me and so if you don't want to show me that if you don't want to explain what the heck was going on with the prince it's fine whatever can you imagine like the studio notes that he would get if he was in like the regular set because you mentioned the things that he tosses off but then he, (laughs) he does that so he can spend 10 minutes watching an old lady walk up a mountain and it's like old lady's walking up the mountain it's difficult the weather is hard her joints hurt uh it's cold she's got a shawl like they spend it ridiculous like and the, the student has to be like why are we spending so much time like we get it she's old it's a mountain it's like no that's what i want i, I really want to have like a 20 shot segment about walking up the mountain or whatever maybe like the things he wants to show he luxuriates in well like spirit and so away he and that stuff. totoro both have extended like this movie does extended scenes involving cleaning cleaning yes Clean, mm-hmm. cleaning is uh, he, he likes that he, he he likes to see that and he knows that that's a thing that lots of people like like it's it's good that his taste aligns with uh, all the taste of a lot of people because seeing someone clean like it's a character moment for the for the in most of the movies but it's also satisfying to see someone take a mess and clean it and it's not going to be like here's the dirty room boop, time lapse and it's clean no you're going to see the person clean it and work on it and it's you know be a again, lot of water on the floor Mm-hmm. Yeah. going to be a lot of mobbing. And dealing with the different areas and making wise cracks and uh, how hard it is to work and different strategies for cleaning and it's just i it's that that's what I, I love about these movies so much is that whatever it is that he wants to show 
is uh, like he takes his time and does it and no one is there telling him you can't have a, a, a 10 minute sequence of cleaning you just can't like you're not advancing the plot this episode of the incomparable is brought to you in part by pingdom while you've been listening to this wonderful episode talking about Howl's moving castle what if something terrible was happening in the real world what if a magician I don't even know where to go with that. A magician cast a spell on your computer and your website went down. It could happen. Computers are totally untrustworthy and, as far as we know, run on magic. And if your computer had a bad spell cast upon it, what would happen? Your customers might not be able to click that buy now button. You wouldn't get paid. You wouldn't get money. It would be bad. You might stumble across this problem by luck. You might get a nasty email from somebody. But uh, what you really need is a system and not to leave it to chance. You need something to tell you that everything is running smoothly. And what that is, uh, is Pingdom. Pingdom will tell you everything's fine. Pingdom will also tell you everything is not fine. There was a wizard. Computers are broken. Help. They'll let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way works for you. And they're smart. They get the information needed to solve the issue sent to whoever needs to know, whether that's one person or everybody on your team. They will make the web faster and more reliable. They use 70 different servers around the world to emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. All they need is your URL. They take care of the rest. Don't risk being the last to know about something on your site breaking. When something on my site breaks, when a wizard casts a spell on my server, I get pinged by pingdom immediately and you can do that too start monitoring your site today go to pingdom.com slash snell that's my last name right now you will get a 14-day free trial no credit card required and when you sign up use the code snell at checkout again still my last name you'll get 30 percent off your first invoice thank you to pingdom for supporting the incomparable so this movie um i'm not gonna try i mean God, do I have to try and summarize the plot? I think I think you do. I think it's oh, your it's incumbent upon Good luck. you. All right. Uh, so there's a, a young girl who works in a hat shop. Um, who she's the oldest sibling? Yes, she, and she is in uh, an alleyway, uh, and a couple of soldiers are harassing her. But a uh, a, a nice blonde gentleman who is the wizard Howl uh, kind of saves her. And uh, she is then, though, because she's been kind of like in Howl's orbit now, she is transformed by the Witch of the Waste into an old lady. Um, She decides that uh, she's going to hide from her family and not show that she's an old lady. uh, And for whatever reason, she's going to go off into the countryside. Um, Why exactly? I'm unclear. Is she trying? There was a reason, but I I forget. I thought she was like going to like hunt down the witch. The witch of the waste. She was trying to to resolve her situation. Yeah, but but, she she was she was Hans Christian Andersening it. (laughs) At least in the dub, she says, "I'll never get there." So she does have some kind of a. At least in the dub, she has some kind of a target in mind, but it's never said what. Yeah, and and I I like those scenes because she does walk up the hill, and she's got the various points where she kind of rests, and a uh, she finds a scarecrow crow who is upside down she's like trying to pull this uh like a branch off in order to use it as a walking stick but it turns out that there's this scarecrow with a turnip for a head that she calls turnip head and um and then he bounces around on a pogo stick reminding me very much of characters in other miyazaki movies as well this magical scarecrow you might think the name turnip head is a little bit on the nose until you realize that she just came from a hat shop named hatter's Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's right yep uh and uh, he and and he leads her to ultimately Howl's moving castle which is as it says it's a 
almost like Baba Yaga like thing where it's this sort of steampunk house with legs and it moves around and it's got multiple doors and she leaps onto it um, and goes in the door. Uh, and that's where she meets uh, uh, the boy who is the apprentice to Hal the Wizard, as well as a cartoon fire demon named Calcifer, who is uh, played in the dub by Billy Crystal and who is animated, regardless of what language you watched it in, as a very, um, this is a cartoon magical character, like even more cartoony than um, than some of the other magical wisecracking sidekicks in some of the other Miyazaki movies, which I think is one of the more interesting stylistic things in the entire movie is that Calcifer is maybe, I don't know what he's like, like the soot sprites maybe where he's a very yeah, simple, very, very, very yeah. stylized. Yeah. Very, uh, it's, it's basically like a flame and draw googly eyes and a mouth on it. <laughs> yeah. so exactly. Design wise, aside from the general production design, he and the castle itself, which uh, was put together uh, computer generated in Gilliam vision, um <laughs> yeah it's super intricate and weird and baroque and yeah yeah can we briefly break up and and talk about the dub for a second at this okay. point yes let's let's do it i i watched the dub this time some people watch the subs some people watch the dubs i watched, I watched it both. i watched it thrice uh twice with the subs as is my preference because i feel like i'm getting a little bit closer to what was intended that way and the third time with the dub uh just to see if they added anything for american audiences to make it remotely coherent uh spoiler <laughs> they didn't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are you going to add? You're going to have. You're going to have. Think of where you're going to squeeze in the exposition to make this make sense. <laughs> and it was the prince all along. A very good cast for the dub, for the most part. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I feel like, and this is always my complaint. I think when I watch the dub after watching the subs first, is that frequently the American voice for a particular character is way too old for the character. At least based on how I saw it when I watched the dub. Hmm. And I think Christian Bale is a major mismatch. Mm-hmm. Um, because he sounds way too old compared to how I feel like he is in in the Japanese version, particularly when he throws his little tantrum. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's totally yeah. out of character with what we've got earlier, which is you know the together the and and uh, and I actually wrote down at one point before I even realized who it was: is he Howl or Batman? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the answer is he is Batman. Mm-hmm. And He's the answer Batman. is this is Batman's moving castle. If you watch uh-huh. it in, in the dub version, um, and then the the only other note that I had specifically on a particular character voice was: I hate hate hate. Billy Crystal as Calcifer. <laughs> see, if you, if you had if you had only seen it. the Billy Crystal Calcifer, maybe it would make sense. But once you see the original one, it's hard to reconcile. Same thing with Gigi, really. In the Japanese version, he's a cute, mischievous little sprite. He's almost huggable, and in the dub, he's a middle aged rabbi. Crystal. And yeah, it's just in, not, in the dub, he's Billy Crystal. Not he is, yeah, it, it is. Billy Crystal. It is. I don't. I don't hate the Billy Crystal performance, but it's super broad. It is. Like, like I really genuinely love the Phil Hartman performance in Kiki's Delivery Service, but the Billy Crystal one, not only is it, he's, he's literally doing the same voices. He's You're doing Mike it's, Wazowski. It's like Mike, Wazow- Mike Wazowski, <laughs> Fire Demon. Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. And, it, and it's kind of obnoxious. And like, I, I, th- I agree. I think if you, if you take it on its own, it's fine. Even then, I'm sort of like, this is a little too much it does go with the animation being super simple and stylized and wacky and i can see why somebody would be like we can go as broad as we need to here because the even in the animation it's super you know zany but it's it's kind of a lot 
it's it's kind of, it's kind of a lot. So I, I'm not surprised that that Calcifer is maybe a little bit more kind of cute and fun and a little less obnoxious than in the in the dub. I watched the dub first, um, just because that was what I got a hold of first. And for the first three or four minutes after Calcifer was introduced, at first I was thinking it was Gilbert Gottfried. So yes, very very broad, <laughs> broad, yeah, very right. wide open. Until finally I figured out it was Billy Crystal. Um, it still worked for me. Most of the voices of the dub worked for me overall. Um, but yeah, going back then and watching the um, watching the subtitled version, uh, Howl especially um, seemed much more in tune with uh, what I was seeing on the screen. Mm-hmm. How, Howl's full on designed like a willowy, wispy, soft boy mm-hmm. Japanese hero guy, and he doesn't match. Well, that's the thing about the about dubs. You can they can be bad because the people are bad voice actors. Like that's just. You know, ignoring everything else, they could just read their lines badly. And that's usually the way they're bad, honestly. But, but you know, uh, Studio Ghibli doesn't have that problem because they get uh, A-list talent who are hopefully, at least even if they're phoning it in, going to do an okay job. And the second thing that can be objectionable about dubs is, like, the, the original movie is the original movie. And I know Jason just like, well, there's no voices. It's always dubbed, right? But the original movie and the director of the yes, original it, movie gets the to decide. authorial intent. Yeah. It is still, yeah. it, it, you, it's not... It, that's that's how it's supposed to sound. <laughs> yeah, well, and they get to decide what the characters are like. First of all, they get to draw them. But then, but then when they direct the voice actors, they could say, you yes. should sound like this. Be growly, be loud and obnoxious, be quiet, be sneaky, be shrill. Like, And that's, that's a, a decision. And when they do the dubs, very often they will change those decisions. Sometimes, and that, that's the right thing to do, but it does mean that what you're seeing is it's a movie with, a, you know, and especially if the original director doesn't direct the uh, the translated voice actors, which I imagine they don't, it's someone else's input. It's almost like a remix. It's like, well, yeah. I've decided this will work better if Calcifer sounds like Billy Crystal. Um, and often it works, but it's different. Well, and it's a second layer of remove too right because you're already have you have to translate the movie whether even into mm-hmm. subtitles you have to translate mm-hmm. it so you're already making some creative decisions that are away from what the original intent is just as a matter of course but then if you if you write a script for a dub and then have actors interpret that and then you direct them differently you've just added multiple layers away from the original intent i yeah I, I totally and sometimes agree. you have to do that and sometimes that's what makes a good dub is being willing to do that and to do a good job i mean i think most of the dubs are good i think this dub is actually pretty good too and i think billy it crystal is. he's being billy crystal and that can work uh but if you've seen the original it, it doesn't match this dub really does not differ much at all from from the from the subtitled version because i i actually for for part of it because i was curious about it i watched the dub version and i turned on the subtitles from the japanese version and it, it really doesn't differ much at all i mean it's well it's i don't know close. if these subtitles are literal translations i'm pretty sure they're not because like the very few japanese words i know like the last line of the movie he says i miss you calcifer but if you hear what they say she says thank you calcifer that's yeah, not no, I'm I miss certain you. they're not. I'm certain they're not exact, but uh, I imagine they're much closer generally. <laughs> right, so than if the... you find straight translation, if you find subtitles like fan subs where it's like literal translation subtitles, you can see where the variance is. But in general, in the U.S. releases, what they're going to put in the subtitles is the words from the dub. I think uh, I think I've I've just uh, remembered why uh, I immediately assumed that uh, Billy Crystal was just doing Mike Wazowski. Pete Doctor directed the dub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. It, it's I think. I think getting A-list talent um, can be good or bad, right? Because there's A-list voice talent, and then there are A-list sort of actors. And this is true with all animated films, by the way. There are, like, the really great voice talent. And some A-list actors are great voice talent. And some of them 
you know, are in it because they're they're known entities. And the Billy Crystal choice, like again, I think the performance is fine, but when you cast Billy Crystal as the wacky character in this movie, this is what you're going to get. You're not going to direct him to be something else. You've made a choice to have this person who is well-known and well-known for doing a certain style of thing. And that's the calcifer you're going to get regardless. And, you know, some of the other choices in here are, are really fascinating. The fact that you have, um, that you have Lauren Bacall and Gene Simmons, like Mm -hmm. two classic movie actresses in it. Uh, that, that's pretty awesome, right? That's really good. And Emily Mortimer too. You talk about like really good actresses. Um, but then you've got, yeah, Billy Crystal's doing his thing. And, and that's, I mean, if you didn't want that, you would have hired him and they wanted that you go back to some of the earlier ghibli dubs and you get somebody like david ogden styers that uh, you know is is a, a blessing and a gift but then when they started leaning more heavily into all right let's um let's fame cast this and bring some people in for a three four hour session and then they're done and sometimes you get some really cool stunt casting and sometimes you get stuff that's kind of uh i would have expected that and christian bale i think I get, I mean, he's trying here. He's trying to do his, his thing. He does at some point, there is that moment where you're like, Oh, that's the Batman voice he just did right there. Uh, but I think the, I think the bigger point is the disconnect with the animation. And you guys have mentioned it. Um, Howell is, I mean, Moises said he is this willowy, um, you know, boyish magician. I would go further and say that the way Howell is drawn, especially when his hair changes color, Howell is, incredibly feminine to the point where if it was dubbed in by a woman i would have accepted it completely like this is a very how is a gentle soft sensitive creature and then there's christian bale's voice it's like mm-hmm. i don't know <laughs> i i mean again not a bad performance but it's probably a mismatch it's probably not not what is right that's too much leading man what do you think of this blouse you like you like the collar <laughs> It's a chiffon. I, I do think uh, we're we're fortunate that these uh, Miyazaki movies dub tracks are good. And if you're watching it with your kids or you're watching it for the first time, um, I you know I actually like watching it for the first time with the dub because it allows me to focus on what's on the screen. And then once I'm more familiar with what I'm seeing on the screen, it's a lot easier for me to go back and put in the subtitles because I'm I've got I've sort of oriented myself, which is I know backward of the way that some people have watched them. But they are good, but they are different and it is fascinating to compare them. Speaking of what's on the screen, where you already mentioned cleaning, uh Eating and preparing food, also heavily yes. featured. Surprise. Yep, yep. I love the, the, the flying machines. I mean, the flying machines for me is the most fundamental Miyazaki is you got to have clouds in the sky, and in that sky there are also flying machines. And in this one, you get these cool kind of like, uh, you got Usually the war very machines. very impractical flying machines. Yeah. It would never work. Yeah, you got the war <laughs> machines, but you've also got these like motor- air motorcycles, they're, they're basically. They're like ornithopters. They're, yeah. you know, like from yeah. uh, uh, Castle in the Sky has the one where they have like oars and propellers and flappy yeah. things, like, like the, the pirate gang has all those flappy things that's that's the mode of you know giant whale with tiny uh bee wings on it that's how i feel like fly. this is miyazaki we're actually seeing miyazaki's dreams here i really believe that miyazaki dreams about being on outlandish flying machines that's he, he doesn't fly himself he's always on a strange flying machine in all of his dreams that's my that's my guess because he has so many of these uh these contraptions and how at well, the, at the end of this movie his puts... flying machines for a lot of them i think <laughs> on the food side of things yeah. we don't have like opulent feasts and and uh, a bunch of 
of of the food stuff, but it it made me appreciate just simple bread and cheese um, more than I I thought I would. I found myself wanting a big and, loaf and of bread and cheese. The eggs are straight <laughs> out of Castle eggs in the and Sky and preparing a yeah. humble yeah. breakfast. I love the um, actually I think it says something about Sophie. I'm talking about the characters in this movie. Sophie is a young girl who's working in the in the hat factory basically at the hat shop, and uh, then she gets transformed into an old lady. Um, and and by the way kind of detransforms at various points and then retransforms mm-hmm. and the way the movie does that is not i think super consistent but it's very interesting well, so and, that's the that's the talking cat question of this movie what causes yeah. sophie what why is sophie old but then slightly younger like what what causes those changes yeah exactly when she's, when she's when she's got her self-confidence she's she's back to her young self See, I, I asked my kids this and and uh, fielded their questions and the problem is any answer you give that seems to make sense like that there are counter examples in the movie like yeah, so, when, when she's cleaning the house, she's totally determined and self confident, and is super old the whole time. But she's she's self confident about cleaning, but she's not necessarily like pro herself at that point. I mean, her whole character is based on the fact that she thinks she's ugly, and the only thing she's good it's at true. is cleaning. That's not really her whole like her whole character. It's hinted at again. Maybe you have to to read the backstory of the book to understand. Like, so she's she doesn't just work in the hat shop. She's the oldest daughter. She's going to inherit that hat shop. The dad already died. The mom is running the hat shop. That's going to be her hat shop. So she's right. she's got this issue mm-hmm. of like. Is this what I want to do with my but she's life? She's not excited about that. She's just accepted that that's the, the mundane life that a girl like her is but, going to yeah, end up leading. Yeah, but she's resigned. She's resigned to it. But that's is that the life that she really wants? Again, m- much more in the book than in the movie. But it, they they give it a nod in in the movie to understand this is like you see her in her totally adorable sewing on the hat thing room with the windows and everything. I love that. Like another one of those wonderful locations in a Miyazaki movie. <laughs> you tell the giant cloud of smoke drifts by yeah, i think, I think that's all part of it by. like that she is sighing like is this is this what it's going to be i'm going to be doing the hats and then i'm going to uh run the hats are and then she's got the whole thing about her looks uh which the movie it like mentions a lot but also like it's weird like it it's mentioned several times i mean like we get we get to the point where even howl is echoing it what was his line of the thing like uh what's the point in living if you aren't beautiful uh, but she's not as hung up on it as you might imagine. It doesn't hold her back from doing almost anything in the movie. It just gets mentioned like five different times. Uh, it's another one of those things. It's like, it's a theme, but it doesn't define her life. Like she's able to live and continue doing her things. And then, yeah, all right. It's, and then the final aspect of Sophie and her deal is this. And this is the thing Miyazaki's never been good at is uh, the supposed love relationship between her and Howell which is put in the movie as if it's a thing that exists and we're supposed to just accept, but it's never supported by anything shown on screen. Yeah, he's very nice to her and she's nice to him. Why does she love him? Why does he love her? Because the movie says so. It's almost Sleeping Beauty level simplistic of, uh, because that's how this thing works. There's only so many characters in the movie, so therefore... There's no chemistry. Like, they try to do it where a towel touches her hand and whatever, but it's like, is it just because... I mean, he can be startlingly beautiful and you can have a character react to that, right? And that's fine, but I don't see how that, you know, it's... The Miyazaki idea of love is, like, just accept it, they're in love. Yeah. (laughs) Can I make a John Hughes comparison? It's a little bit pretty in pink, where you're like, Blaine? Blaine? Come on, Ducky's right there. Yeah, it's it's just yeah the the, the characters well, that are I here. Mean, there's there's the the prince that w- that was turnip head and well that's just not going to be an option because she's going to be with Howl 
for reasons. She is dark. He is dark <laughs> and brooding and everything, but she's uh, like she's more sensible. It's just like they're she's kind and he and and cares for him and like they they do all these things, but there's no there's no chemistry. Like if you had if these were live action people, you'd be saying the actors had no chemistry. That they're they're put in the in the movie and they're made to do these things together, but at no point do you. Do you really feel the the mutual attraction? No, the classic. Yeah. The I, I would say the classic arc, and this is something that is left on the floor by Miyazaki because he's not that interested. Is is that Turnip Head is taking care of her and is the one who is really loyal to her and caring? He's for the her ducky, and, and I kind of want I kind of want to, <laughs> Turnip Head. To, yeah, that's that's to, what I'm saying. To turn into a human and be like, I've always loved you, Sophie. And he does the laundry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotta love that. Cleans up after himself, unlike that slob howl. The other thing that about Sophie that I, I I wanted to mention that I think is fascinating about her character is she dives in to the um, the work of cleaning up the castle because the castle is a disaster when she gets there. It is a complete disaster, and rather than being like, I need to talk to the wizard, uh, he needs to uh, fix this curse because now I'm an old lady and all of that, uh, which she can't talk about. But you know, she that's why. Why, sort of maybe why she's there but she just throws herself into doing the work of i'm gonna get this house in shape like this is sophie that, that always strikes me she's like i've turned into an old lady and now i'm in this disastrous wizard's house and what am i gonna do i'm gonna clean and i'm gonna cook and i'm just gonna transform this place into a nicer place than it is now and i think that's kind of a fascinating choice uh, you know the way i view it is that this is one of the few things that she can control and can exert her will on um and also the other thing about it is that uh, Howell and uh, Markle are—they're um, a disaster. I mean, they're both—they're both kids, and she has to be the responsible one. But like this, yeah. Th- yeah. those things, that defines her character so much more than anything else. I know they drop in the five times that she keeps saying that she's ugly, but what, what that she's ugly and she's worried about that. But what she does in the movie shows what she's actually like which is she's you know sees a job that needs to be done she's and does responsible. it and she's yeah she's fearless she, and responsible and she wants a challenge and an adventure and there's none of that in the hat shop yeah she's just there sewing the same little bow on the same stack of 20 hats and because she's the oldest and here she gets to you see that she is a sensible practical uh, capable person but does not get a chance to flex that in her normal life and then she has to visit her sister who everybody loves because she's beautiful and glamorous and her mother who's also glamorous she feels out of uh, out of step with the two other family members you see and of course the dad is dead um so it's almost like even though she's cursed and, and she's got the mutual nda where they both can't talk about their curses and she's supposedly doing this deal with Hal. but it's like the movie is not particularly interested in her resolving the curse it's interested in seeing her like just look at her face in this when she's in the castle doing all these things setting up the clotheslines making food she's smiling the whole time like she's having a grand old time well, I feel like pretty pretty early on, she's she's not. I'm not say she's entirely accepted the fact that she's turned into an old lady, but she's kind of she's kind of appreciative of the fact that there are some perks uh, to to people not having expectations of you, and yeah. the fact that I mean, she she mentioned mm-hmm. several times that uh, you know, well, I'm old, nothing really surprises me anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not nervous about this creepy place. You um, can't frighten me anymore. It's it's, it's beauty yeah. and the flying beast without the romance. I mean, <laughs> in a sense, I think you know she's she's found a place where she can hide and she doesn't have to yeah, worry about the fact that she it. she thinks she's mm-hmm. homely. And in fact, like there's this, uh, a pretty uh, a pretty clear scene later where I think I think it's right after he tells her you are beautiful, and she's she's they've been walking around the lake and she's been getting increasingly younger. And I think right at that point she snaps back into being old again. She climbs back into her shell. So I, I think that's that's why she she's in these early scenes. I think she's gone into the 
cleaning as, you know, that's, she's like, well, okay, cool. This is, this is who I am now. I'm, I'm an old lady. I don't have to worry about anything and I'm, I'm going to clean stuff cause that's what I'm good at. And, uh, you know, but she also cares for Howell in that way. Like when he's all in yeah. his depths of despair covered with slime, which is such a great visual representation of like, of just, you know, uh, a spiral of depression and self pity, right? His literal green slime is dripping off <laughs> yeah. him. And she hauls his butt upstairs and throws him into the tub, and she's really just taking she charge. Make Markle clean him. Uh, yeah, of, of the person That's... who initially she was shocked by this, you know, this glamorous, fabulous, magical, beautiful uh, boy who saves her from oppressors. All of that awe and reverence is gone, and now she's just she's being a, a you know a caretaker and uh, you know not taking any of his crap. Uh, but she, again, she's she's old the the entire time in that too. Like I I love. I mean, this is obviously I love all the animation and, and the way everything looks in all these movies. And this movie is beautiful. Like you can tell that it came after. You know, c- compare the animation of this to to, to uh, Nausicaa. Like you can tell this is a post Spirited Away uh, Miyazaki movie. Everything is gorgeous, and I love. This is something that you can only really do in a completely coherent way in animation. The split second change of age in her face as she yells something and becomes young then old with the various gradations if you did that in live action you could do it with fancy uh, computers to morph and do a lot of stuff but it would be really really hard it, it, it would always feel like regular people's faces don't do that but in animation anything goes like in animation people could turn sideways and the geometry of their face changes because it just looks better right the, all the rules are off and so it's it is of a piece with everything else that you see and i think it's i think it's beautiful i think lots of frames of this movie lots of little snippets of animation are just things I've never seen before. When have you seen someone having a conversation and changing age from moment to moment, depending on what they say and what's going on in the in the exchange? And then you got a googly eyed piece of fire. It's it is uh, very inventive, and I think some of the best animation. I mean, Spirited Away always gets uh, picked up as like, oh, it's it's such a beautiful animator. I think Howl uh, Spirited Away has nothing on Howl. It's it's they're they are on the on the same footing. Going back to the original language track, uh, one of the distinct differences is that it's the same voice actress as old Sophie and young Sophie, and you have two different voice uh, actresses on the English track, mm-hmm. and and you get to see that dynamic in the same way that John's talking about the the shift from one look to another, and on that same thread, you know, as as much as I, I kind of went went against the, you know the 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 passion, the romance never quite caught fire. I really love that the movie leans so heavily on being against superficiality um, in a movie that is this gorgeous. I mean, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous movie that is all about how superficiality is terrible and horrible and the worst thing ever. Um, and I I liked that every opportunity that there was to go, OK, now the ugly, the physical ugliness, as it were, of these people, um, you know, they get to melt it away and, and everybody gets to be pretty in the end. The the movie did not concern itself with any of that kind of Western tropey kind of stuff. I, I really liked that. And her hair was white at the end, too. He said it's, it looks like starlight, but yeah. she doesn't care what she looks like by that point. Right. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, fine. And it's interesting how. As you said, you know, her her feelings, her spirit never changes, you know, even though, you know, at times, whether it's self-confidence, whether it's just, you know, passion, whatever it is that um, gets her looking young again at times. But then, you know, with Howell, he's got a transformation, too, because he starts off very glamorous, um, you know, beautifully dressed, all of these things looking like the looking like the public image, the wizard howl. And then after she goes through her cleaning and she's organized all his potions and she apparently puts uh, one of the hair... (laughs) 
potions in the wrong place because it you know changes the color and he comes down screaming because it's red and then it goes to what is apparently his original dark hair color which he keeps through the rest of the movie um so it, it's kind of like you know he winds up stripping off a lot of his facade as well throughout this movie finding himself again I also appreciate that Miyazaki went to old Brady Bunch scripts to find plot points for his films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a, it's a thing that happens. There's a lot of different bottles in there, and they can get mixed up easily. And when some of them are magic, it's it's even worse. It's just trouble. It's trouble. Yeah. So the, the other the other thread that's in this movie, which is probably the most discordant thread with the rest of the stuff that we've described, but is very strong and is you know is is part of the the mixture of the part of what I think. You know, him trying to make the movie that he wasn't quite ready to make yet is the whole war angle and with Hal trying to run interference and losing yourself if you change into this magical beast and stay that way too long. And he's coming back and he's covered with feathers and he's flying and the right. cities are being symbolically firebombed, which surprise, surprise, you know, like there there are no mushroom clouds in this one, but a few of the bombs that fall in the water are basically miniature uh, atomic bomb blast so the whole anti-war uh thing is is spread throughout and it comes in stronger and stronger towards the end because it's it's the main uh sort of thing that is is dogging how like i know we have the whole side plot where you go to the castle to talk to suleiman and how is uh, disguised as the king and there's all that that's that's fun but that, she melts the witch of the waste that happens in yeah there too. Uh, yeah the witch of the waste turns into the adorable witch of the waste we'll talk about in a second but yeah. the but the, but the whole uh, how <laughs> adorable of, maybe yeah. pushing it a little yeah. bit the, the she's whole, basically <laughs> a pile of witch flesh with a rather phallic looking I th- nose I think what a she's cuddly a, blob of monsters you know, I, <laughs> I think she goes from from like you know terrifying ugly typical like miyazaki drawing these these huge terrifying women he's obviously got some issues that he's dealing with there. Oh my God! The look of the witch and the way she moves—I yeah. think that's—it's more than enough to earn the PG rating for me. <laughs> she turns into a sweet old lady Shogoth in, in Spirited Away. It's a <laughs> similar type of thing: terrifying, huge women with giant faces. But uh, but when she changes into the old woman, I think she does actually become adorable and cuddly. And you see—you think she's seen out, but the old one is, is still inside there as well. But anyway, the, the war plot—it's kind of like Grave of the Fireflies gets brushed past this movie, right? And it's and it's so integral to Howell's story because that's his that's his problem he's like she's got to save him from staying as a beast but he wants to he doesn't want the war to go on uh but he's he constantly goes through the black door to try to help out the situation eventually the war comes to our our kikiville you know the war the war arrives the pamphlets are dropped the bombs start going down um and it's you know magically resolved by by turniped and you know all that ridiculousness but like that's there and it's like this dark shadow on an otherwise sort of like a spirited away i feel has a more consistent threat throughout and it fits with the movie this movie is like you know you know kiki and uh maybe castle the, the sort of the the adventure fun of castle in the sky and then I, I i said it was like the the anti-militarism and war machines of nausicaa but it's a little bit like grave of the fireflies and it just it brushes past and strikes through this movie like a like a big stripe of coal through the, your happy miyazaki land and i think works because without it this movie would have less of an edge and be less interesting but it's, it's definitely creepy i want to mention um markle who we've only mentioned in passing who is the apprentice um only because i could not love him in disguise with his fake beard <laughs> running errands in the various towns anymore it is 
so adorable that this is this kid with a fake beard who is pretending to be, you know, basically the the wizard or at least the associate of the wizard. And I like how Sophie goes out with him uh, to do various stuff in the in the town, and he's got his ludicrous fake beard. It is he's selling mm. potions or mm. whatever he is. I it's, hate fish. I, I, I love am it. A real old man. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's great. It's just adorable. It's one of those. It's one of those Miyazaki moments for me which is just the the kid with the big fig beard it's great it's great markle um and then uh is there more to say about our uh, uh our calcifer uh fire spirit because so what happens is that calcifer is like powering the moving castle i guess we should say uh I stopped summarizing the plot at some point, which was nice, but I should at least say in the center section here, like the war is going on. The king summons Howell to fight in the war. We've talked about that, that the, his advisor is uh, is another witch and she drains the witch of the waste of the power and uh, all of that is going on. And also like Howell and Calcifer are connected together. It turns out that Calcifer is is basically powering the, uh, the whole castle. And if Cal- Calcifer is freed, then he can kind of go off and do whatever he wants which is what he wants and that's what sophie sort of promised him um but calcifer is uh the you know cranky cranky guy at the center of the castle he's a fire uh she does him a solid by like uh there's that scene where she cleans the ashes out of the fireplace where he lives which i thought was uh, uh it's a it's an interesting scene and then and calcifer himself references it later basically says hey look isn't this nice <laughs> like, well she puts some <laughs> logs where he can actually get to them yeah yeah and Calcifer's got a uh, house heart too. Uh, and what do you mean Calcifer has house heart? Just just accept it. Uh, he's got he's got house well, heart. Well, you see, it's actually very simple. When he was a boy, he ate a shooting star mm-hmm. and then he vomited up his heart That's with a right. fire demon around it. it and makes now perfect it sense. Steers his castle. Carried, Look, guys. if you're not prepared to suspend that disbelief, <laughs> I don't know that any of Miyazaki's movies are for you. <laughs> yeah. But like the thing is, like that that whole plot line, as far as I'm aware, is entirely added. Like it's not in the books. Uh, like there is a mutual curse, but I don't think the whole shooting star uh, house in my childhood and the beautiful flower field heart eating business like mm. maybe that's it wasn't in the summary that i read but and, but and it, i think time travel as well if i'm not mm-hmm. mistaken well the the um the the like uh, secret garden kind of a thing in the book is like his childhood home in wales yeah and it's, and, and it's, it's so used to have exists. beautiful places and just to have memories and like you know ha- have that big field and have the little house and have her you know see him from the past and have various effects of like uh you know not really time travel, but like viewing viewing a thing that you weren't actually there and getting pulled back into reality. Lots, all the magic effects in this are really good. The the strange sort of uh, abbreviated battle uh, when they're facing the uh, the Suleiman or whatever her name is the uh, the the witch lady, the royal witch lady who summoned everyone and is chill chill in her little chair and her beautiful like uh, garden uh, greenhouse thing, uh, spinning out huge giant you know balls of magic and then just continuing to sit there after they all leave like this like spirit away has lots of images that stick with me mostly disconnected from the events of the movie if you've seen kingdom of dreams and madness uh the documentary that really gives you a look at miyazaki doing his work the shooting star thing came off to me as I, i i could imagine miyazaki um doing doing the thing that you see him do many times in that documentary where he just you know he's he's scratching the back of his head smoking a cigarette and going oh how am i gonna um 
Uh, wish on a shooting star. Why? Why not? Wish on a shooting star. There, love, if, romance, done. If, if you ask, like, why? Why is the shooting star? Why did the shooting? Why did he eat it? And why did it take his heart? It's like just that's what happens sometimes. <laughs> sure. it's, it's just, what, I don't understand your question. This movie has to end sometime. <laughs> right. The um the what what ends up happening in this movie is um that uh Sophie takes. Uh, calcifer out of the fireplace and the house the castle falls apart it degenerates in an adorable way getting smaller it, and smaller it does it does it <laughs> falls apart in little pieces here and there and they end up kind of with a platform and their <laughs> two legs of the wheel spinning under it yeah yeah it's uh it's kind of uh it is adorable and then in the end as as this is resolved and um and uh the you know look suffice it to say Hal's heart is the is calcifer and all of that and uh calcifer is revived and they basically set up a new home inside things but it's still magic um in a new flying castle and that's that's what the movie is it's i mean i i I don't even know what to say like (laughs) it 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 is it's such a strange jason story I, i actually i think i can break this down jason here is how magic works (laughs) <laughs> hmm. Hmm. no that was it that was all that was it that was the whole thing well, what you do is as much of an explanation catch as you're a falling get, star so you well be and happy with it. eat it and that's yeah. how magic works and make sure you take note of the girl that appeared in your childhood uh mm-hmm. as she falls into a hole in the ground because you're going to see her later in life and uh she's going to stick yeah. your heart back in your chest yes it's not clear where their rules for time travel are whether he actually remembers i that. feel i feel like in, in my head canon she was there at that point, and she tells him in the in the subtitles to wait for her. And in fact, I suspect that he knows who she is all along, or at least knows that she was the girl who was there. And so, uh, when she comes up to him and tells him, you know, I'm sorry, I made you wait this. Hey, he's long. the boy it who was, waited. Yeah, I, I I think I think he's aware of it the entire time. So, I think that that's supposed to be taken as literal. That she was there at the time. Oh, we forgot the uh, the, the extended stair climbing scene. <laughs> that that whole long <laughs> walk to the, to the castle and how it's hard to climb stairs when you're old and how she ends up oh, encouraging yeah. encouraging the, the 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 henchman can't come because of the spell and so she ends up encouraging the witch like you can do it oh, make yeah. it up and that's then the greatest scene and then the witch comes in and she sits in a chair the and those creepy little stick figures come up all around her and lights blast her and she shrivels to nothing and it's just like this, this whole sequence I love, and the little dog the little dog oh yeah <laughs> with the little I weird web dog that the, feet the, the, the bit where Sophie plops the fat old dog on his back at the top of the castle stairs, <laughs> and he slowly flops over onto his stomach, and then he slides feebly around on his belly until he can get to his feet, might be my favorite single piece of animation that I have ever seen. It is so utterly glorious. And it comes at the end of that scene, which yeah. I think is, is just amazing. Uh, yeah, and it just made me laugh, because of course she, at the moment, she thinks that's Howl. So she's just right. treating him like you know. You'll fix this, <laughs> and I, I love, I love the, the like to me, I, 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 because Miyazaki himself, like he's a darker, more sardonic guy than I think people initially think that he is. I love the idea of him going, "Oh, okay, guys. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have her think that the dog is Howl. The dog is Howl, guys. The dog is never Howl, and she makes a total <laughs> the idiot dog of is herself. A it's great. It's so dog. good. Yeah, it's a, it, the, the, yeah. The, the dog, the dog's done with it. The dog is like, okay. Hey, old lady Grinch, screw off. Uh, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. The dog got carried up the stairs. He couldn't make it up the stairs, so she carried him. I, I love that scene so much just because it's so 
I mean, it, it's such a mundane thing. There's two old ladies. Mm-hmm. They're going to go up these stairs. But then it turns into this bizarre like, race. Like you're rooting mm-hmm. and then you're rooting for the Witch of the Waste to make it up the stairs. Well, and, and I love it that the, the Heen can't make it up the stairs. So she has to go back. And that's kind of stressful. She's got to pick him up. And now he weighs like 50 pounds or something. So she's slowed down by that. And then they pass each other two or three times. And then, yeah, absolutely. And particularly in the subs, it's it's a little it's a little more made um, that, that she's like rooting on the Witch at the end and she's she's so annoyed that they made them climb these stairs that she's <laughs> turned around 180 degrees on the witch and uh it's fantastic i mean it's such a silly thing and yet it's it becomes this great centerpiece to that uh, to the movie if i'm not misremembering it's one of the early action sequences of the movie <laughs> <laughs> and then like after this whole again with the whole thing with the witch of the waste like this is a big plot line she's cursed she must be the antagonist to get the curse undone she'll have to deal with the witch of the waste nope the witch of the waste will be light bulb melted into a blob and become this adorable sidekick character that you come to like that's right and there's and the, and the dog is around that that dog just becomes just, a cute animal there sidekick. have to be at least two super cute things super cute animals or sprites or something mm-hmm. that follow the, the hero around yeah i think i think one is the dog and the other is the witch of the waste when she becomes the old lady like it's, it's uh, i would have said calcifer, calcifer I think the witch the... of the waste is still a little distressing <laughs> she is but i i, I don't know I come, I come around on the witch of the waste when she's it, she's just so such a so impish and shrunken and lumpen. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like her a lot better in the in the uh, in the subs. Um, the the Japanese voice is so enfeebled and quiet and mm-hmm. old lady. And there are there there are moments where she's more lucid and it's clear that she still has some of the wits of the Witch of the Waste about mm-hmm. her. But uh, you know, for all for all of uh, Lauren McCall's strengths, there really isn't much distinction between the first half and the second half Witch of the Waste and her performance. Yeah. And and another thing that's a that's a big difference there is in the subs, they refer to her fairly consistently as grandma. She's become the grandma of this little family mm-hmm. group that they've created, and they never make a point of even saying that. I think in the in the uh, in the dub. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that changes the, the character of her character uh, quite a bit. And I think it makes her quite a bit more lovable, at least in, in the, the subtitle version. So what else have we not discussed that we should, uh, we should get to about this? I want to call out uh, once again, and I do this every time we do a Miyazaki, uh, the greatness of Joe Hisaishi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The score on this thing mm. is, is exquisite. Yeah. It, it is very much a blend of Spirited Away and Kiki. Like you get there, it's almost like he's evoking past movies. Like you hear this passage, it should remind you of Kiki, which was set in a summer place. It's it's now that's what I call Joe Hisaishi Volume Six. <laughs> 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 and the other thing I wanted to mention just offhand is is um, you know we've already called out the animation as being gorgeous, but in particular the the castle itself and the number of independently animated bits and pieces oh that hang off of it and are all entirely articulated is genuinely incredible i mean it's it's an amazing technical achievement i think at the same that, time like i think it's so beautiful and i love it but i think it's hilarious that historically uh miyazaki apparently hated it because then the next thing that he did was ponyo which was all completely hand-drawn animation and didn't touch any cg stuff and he he got really allergic to the notion of of cg when he uh, of using it at all if he could avoid it 
Is the castle CG in this? Yeah, the castle. Well, the castle's. Uh, I mean, it's hand drawn things that are hand drawn. Yeah, hand drawn things rigged onto CG. Okay, yeah. well, that's a slightly less impressive then. It's still very cool, but uh, I <laughs> Steve, assume that it was Steve entirely... downgrades it to mostly pretty impressive. What, when it's, the, it's still uh, the ship crashes into the castle and the, they have to draw sort of like the, the through line of like, here's the structure of the castle cl- crumbled with the ship in it, and then the ship gets pushed out and pulled out of the mouth like the whole realization of not just like it's a it's a shell that looks like a thing but it's a structure that has internal and external structure despite the fact that it being completely ridiculous and that they have to deal with it and hop around it like when they when they fish turnip head out of like the vent or thing where he's stuck in there and they pull him out sideways and and he hops up on those little cannon things like there are, so there are cannons on the moving castle as well and domes you know Miyazaki loves domes you see them in uh castle in the sky the various domes with the with the gun turrets poking out of them there's a lot of a lot of visual themes like you could you could take frames of this movie and cut pieces out of them and paste them into past movies and they would fit perfectly. That was one of the things that held me, especially getting started just and I think that's one of the reasons I'm glad that I saw the dub first so that I didn't have to try and read at the same time, but just to appreciate just how lush and beautiful the art is um, from, you know, the, the the structure of the town. Like you said, this delightful blend of steampunk and old world Um going into uh, things like Howl's bedroom or, or you know, even when it's a mess, just all the details that oh, you are shown uh, in the castle and around. Um, just I, this was a visual feast that I'm going to be happy to watch again just to admire it. Howl had uh, stuffed cows on his bed. I don't know why that was in there. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> with the rest of the movie, but they pan across his bed. And he's, he's two, well, there's all, all sorts of trappings cows. of childhood in his room i mean it's he's still you know he still has a child's heart it's not in him currently yeah, but, right. uh, but all of those things are, are like magically imbued toys and dolls and and things what, what did he know. have he had like the the message summoning him to the kingdom and he had like thrown scissors and darts into it or something like the most well, he's, he's he's pissed about it juvenile to, way uh, to uh, express your anger well i mean and that's kind of what he's doing with the war too because you know it's, it's like there's not it's not really shown clearly that he's defending one side or the other he's just sees war machine and goes boom destroy yeah i mean the whole angle there is that he has to become a monster to fight the monsters the mm-hmm. more the more he the more monstrous he is the more effective he is at battling like if he wants to survive the onslaught of those creatures with the little mm-hmm. what is the little uh uh, nozzle that spurts out other wiz- what are basically other wizards that have mm-hmm. lost themselves because they've been evil you know they've been creatures too long right that he right. he wants to affect change but to do it he has to become a monster himself and they have that whole you know mm-hmm. very very dark theme there in like literal darkness and it's strange caves and he's just covered oh, with he's, feathers he's basically and, batman and thorns yeah <laughs> so in other words christian bale was the right call yeah <laughs> for, for those <laughs> ridiculous scenes yeah yeah. The rest, maybe not, because he doesn't look anything. Monsters. He stops He's looking like a waif monster in those things. This may not be the castle you want. <laughs> You've got to be a Our beast, deserve. Belle. A very beautiful beast. But it's the castle you need. <laughs> I've buried enough wizards, Master Howell. <laughs> <laughs> I've buried I'm not going to bury howls. another I'm not one, gonna Master Howell. Howl. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Calcifer's is his Alfred. Yeah, that's it. That's so, it. Someone, can someone answer this about Calcifer? Calcifer at one point is fed eggshells. And I'm yeah. like trying to tell if they're trying to give a nod. Eggshells have calcium. And his name is Calcifer. Oh. So he loves eggshells. <laughs> or is it just like you put eggshells in the garbage disposal? Like, why does I mean, Calcifer have eggshells? It's more or less yeah. trash. Like to me, yeah, that he, he eats up whatever. He does toss the remains of his breakfast. He's, he's a fire. He burns after. it. Crunch, crunch, crunch. 
Yeah, he's he's the garbage disposal for the castle. So before uh, before we wrap this up, I want to go around and get everybody's sort of like overall judgment. Now, having watched at least once and perhaps more times in various forms, Howl's Moving Castle, what your final judgments are. Moises, why don't we start with you? I've only seen it the once, and I really, really loved it um, uh, because when you're looking at a greatest hits album of all stuff that you like, uh, you can't really go wrong. Um, it's it's got little bits and pieces of of things that I like across all of Miyazaki's uh, filmography and all of Ghibli, um, and uh, you know we we associate Miyazaki as being a lot of the authorial voice of Ghibli um, because he's what stands out the most, um, and he's perfectly happy playing within his own sandboxes. He's 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 totally fine being selfish, and I'm totally fine with him being selfish because he's got some weird cool interesting interests uh and i look forward to us covering some of the other stuff that did bleed into this like castle of Cagliostro did um bleed into this porco rosso definitely bled into this um there's uh there's some there's some cool stuff ahead that uh isn't this much of a metatextual kind of a thing shannon your first how was it? How did it go? I'm very curious how you appreciated this fever dream. Um, I I appreciate it very much. Um, I am very curious to see more Miyazaki and more Studio Ghibli, but I ended up really, really liking this a lot. Um, I have said before across other platforms and podcasts that you know, t- in general, if you've got interesting characters doing interesting things with each other, I'm not so worried about plot. And in this case, that was a good thing because I got interested in the characters in Sophie and then in Howell as things continue to happen to them and bring them together. Um, and uh, and bonus, it was utterly gorgeous to look at. Uh, I love animation. I enjoy the medium very much. And this was, mm. I think, uh, some peak animation being shown as far as stretching the art form Um to um to show just how good it can be so um i i loved it i will watch it again um and uh and i like i said i will probably go see more miyazaki oh man yeah you've got some really great stuff to to see ahead of you we we all envy you having that wide open field out in front of you all those movies (laughs) to choose from yeah i mean viewing this as the sort of like greatest hits from a bunch of different movies all put together that also means that that if you discover those other movies you'll be like oh like the, oh there's that scene where they're by the 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 lake and they park the uh-huh. castle and they're sitting there having their tea and i'm like this is really really totoro to me right where it's the the they're having the tea and that or or and the, or kiki and there's so much so many different little, little connections it's, it's amazing so i'm uh i'm glad you liked it and i i hope you uh definitely check out more because there's uh this guy yeah he's this is not a an outlier he's got the goods. this is a very <laughs> this is very much a concentrated miyazaki like this is what he is like is like this movie <laughs> um steve what what did you think of this one yeah, <laughs> I I absolutely adored the first half of this movie. Uh, I liked the Sophie character. I loved the twist of her being an old lady and her, you know, leading into the the cleaning and the you know the whole chase on the stairs and everything. I thought it was fantastic. I just absolutely adored it. Obviously, it's beautiful. It's it's fascinating, um, meticulously made, just like every other Ghibli. And then 
right around the time, uh, about the one hour mark where they visit Suleiman and they start piling on plot complications on plot complications and they never explain any of them and the weirdness piles up and none of it makes any damn sense and the plot just turns into a big mishmash of God knows what. It, it, it lost me uh, a bit. You know, I still had a great ride, but I, I find that this is pretty clearly my least favorite of the Miyazakis we've seen. Um, you know, I said when when watching Spirited Away, obviously that was super weird, but that had a very thin plot. And so, you know, the, the plot at least maintained a little bit of coherence and the weirdness. You know, I was happy to ride that one out because that was it was a weird movie with a simple plot. Uh, Mononoke, I said I was a little frustrated with because a lot of the plot was explained and there were just things that I, I wanted to reach for and understand better. But but that, too, you know, I, I understood what was going on throughout the entire movie. And I, I got enough of it that I, I wasn't horribly frustrated with this. I was just so so in the dark as to what the hell was going on past the midway point. And uh, it, it, to, to such an extent that by the end, I was just like, well, uh, some stuff is happening and I'm not sure I really <laughs> care anymore about what happens to these characters. And I'm not sure that Miyazaki did either because at the end it just comes to this crazy fast halt and it's all resolved and everybody's happy. And, uh, and I found it very unsatisfying. If I can borrow a food metaphor, Steve, it sounds like you went to a chef's tasting and like 14 courses in the chef shows up and is like, Hey, you like brisket. You like jello. Guess what? <laughs> Two great tastes taste great together. Here you go, okay, Steve. Sure. Heat up. Yeah, just pile it on. Uh, yeah, I ate it. I'll say that much. <laughs> I ate the whole Man, thing. It was but, food. Uh, yeah. It was food as far as Steve could tell. You know, there's a lot to love about it. I, like I said, I love that first half, but uh, he went just a, a bridge too far for me with this one. And, and I wish there was more to grasp onto in terms of plot and in terms of understanding just what the hell this whole thing was about. I am kind of in agreement with Steve. I, I, I don't think I'm kind of as, as extreme. I think the first half is delightful. I think the second half, there are parts of it that I really like, but there are also threads with, you know, I'm not that interested in Hal and his bird form and the, and, and the, the battles. I'm really not that interested in that. I am kind of interested in what's going on with Calcifer and with the witches and the deconstruction of the castle into a platform with the legs and a wheel and all of that. I think that, that part I'm more interested in, but there are in the second half of the movie, definitely I found my, my uh, focus uh, wandering at certain points with some of the plot stuff where it just didn't hold me. And I think you're right. It, it is the downside of Miyazaki being somebody who wants to tell you, he'll show you what he cares about and the rest of it doesn't matter is sometimes what he wants to show you is not what you want to see. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a kind like of that. him at his most like oppositional and defiant. Yeah. He doesn't care like, what you want. He's, he's, he's <laughs> like, he's like, you know what you're expecting is for me to complete this loop. Guess what? I'm not nope. doing that. <laughs> going to happen. So that is. I'm willfully not doing that. I want you to be uncomfortable. Are you uncomfortable? Excellent. I did exactly what I and wanted. And I feel like I know him well enough that that I've reached the point with Miyazaki movies where 
even if it's something where as a movie i think it's starting to kind of come apart which the second half of this movie i think i would say does that like like steve said um i i can appreciate it on one level just because i know miyazaki well enough at this point that when i'm watching it i'm gonna be like oh yeah i see like i i I appreciate watching the craftsman and knowing his foibles and knowing his favorites and sort of see i see what you're doing there i see how you're riffing on that i get what you know of course that's what you're doing there but that is a very different thing than uh enjoying you know enjoying the ride in the movie versus appreciating what Hayao Miyazaki does when he's doing his thing and the fact that he's an old man and at some point he's no longer going to be with us like I, I every one of these movies that he made I want to treasure it for that reason but that's a different feeling than like I'm all in on this movie and and the second half of this movie I was not all in I was fractionally in it's like grandpa tells great stories but when he takes a turn into talking about the war, it's a point of no return. <laughs> that one got away from him a little yeah. bit, but still, I love it when Grandpa tells a story. And part of the reason why I found that getting away from him sort of disappointing was because there's a lot of really good setup here. I love their little family coming together. I think that could have been resolved in a very satisfying and moving way. I, I like, you know, the Sophie kind of coming into her own and, and no longer being concerned about, you know, what she sees as her ugliness. And all of that stuff just kind of falls by the wayside in the end. And it's, it's, it's too bad because, um, you know, like you, I, I agree. Miyazaki's going to Miyazaki and, uh, and it's pretty glorious, but, uh, you know, I, I just feel like this could have been a little more satisfying. Yeah. John, what, uh, what's your overall view of Howl's Moving Castle? So I already said in, in, in the past that, uh, the part of the reason, uh, part of the order that we're watching these movies in is, is I'm front loading the ones I like the best. So given even this one is farther back in the pack, you can tell it's not one of my favorites. Uh, like a greatest hits album, it's got the great songs that you know but it's never going to be as coherent as like a planned album from the 70s or 80s with like a theme you know uh and that's that's the biggest weakness of this movie is that it it just could never settle on a through line uh there there's lots of things that could be setups for potential through lines but none of them are through lines and it's almost as if uh you know that that's i said in the beginning my overriding impression of the creation of this movie is that there is something uh digging at Miyazaki uh that he found himself pulled in that direction and it, and as this movie progressed away from the direction of the setup of the of the book and the setting and everything like pulled pulled in the direction of wanting to talk more about uh the war and how it's turning Howl into a monster and it's just like there is no there is no really good solid basic theme story plot resolution in this movie and it's not even like a like a solid emotional theme like we we already we talked about the themes that are woven throughout the movie but it's just it's from one scene to the next you're pulled in so many different directions like now now we're like this and now we're like that and in 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 a way that is not true of like spirited away which you know steve mentioned doesn't have much of a plot but the the sort of what you're feeling uh, and what sort of the experience of the protagonist is is very consistent through that movie it's a, you're in a strange place and it's confusing and scary and you must deal with it right and same thing for the much more straightforward movies like the adventure movies like a uh, uh you know castle in the sky the more serious adventure movies like nausicaa and mononoke like those are just so straight up the middle compared to this sort of survey course and i feel like it's not just a survey course that jumps around it's a it's a thing where it was trundling along and then got pulled hard to the left into and i i said graves of the firefly grave of the fireflies as if everyone here has seen that but i know everyone hasn't 
Um, and to just to reveal what I've what I've been hinting at is that the the movie that he felt like he wanted to make for the second half of this movie, but he was absolutely not ready to make, and certainly this was not the appropriate venue to make it, was The Wind Rises, yeah. which is very different from other Miyazaki movies in some important ways, but it's just so, it's like, it's like The Wind Rises came and stomped its foot on half of this movie, uh, and it doesn't, it just doesn't hold together, despite the fact that this is a later movie. He's really, really good at what he does. Every small element, uh, section, scenes is just—it's amazing, and it's a—it's a beautiful thing to behold. Like when I watched it again, I've seen it many, many times, but I haven't seen it in many years. I watched it again. I found myself able to just enjoy the good aspects of it. It did not get hung on the other things, partially because, like when I first saw this, Wind Rise didn't exist and didn't understand what was going on here. Now, in hindsight, I kind of see how this fits into miyazaki's creative life but it doesn't make it better as a movie like it's not you know i would never pick this as someone's first movie uh although that may be the way to get the best impression of it because if you've never seen a miyazaki movie everything in this is just so beautiful and fascinating and and so miyazaki that i can imagine being bowled over by it but as a movie it just doesn't hold together as well as the other one so i feel like to get the most enjoyment of it watch it appreciate all of the small things in it and now i watch it and what i appreciate is the the struggle uh, as a creative person that miyazaki is apparently going through of you know what he wants to say is very different than what he was saying like and we go all the way back to castle Cagliostro, like that kind of carefree adventure movie uh with you know with some emotional resonance and then adventure movies and everything like this, this is so far from that this is an older man coming to grips with issues that he was not, you know, not putting into his movies a couple of decades earlier. Yeah, I, th- I think its presence as that connective tissue is, is why with it being like the, the last one of his directed movies that I've seen, the reason that I like it so much where taking it on its own, it's, uh, it's difficult for me to even think of it as something that isn't relative to a bunch of other stuff yeah it, it, it lives it's the, it lives it's, within, it's the cimmerillion it's the cimmerillion of his stuff right and it's it's like it's meta you, you need these movies sometimes you can watch movies and you don't need to know anything about the people who made them but i feel like you need to know a lot about the person who made these movies to to, to correctly place at, uh and and absorb this one uh, otherwise it just ends up being like an amazingly an, an improbably beautiful uh interesting fun movie that nevertheless lacks like lacks that strong through line right and, and, you know, I, and I think I think I enjoyed watching it like we, we all watched it together as a family we enjoyed the experience of watching it but when I put on my critics hat and say does this hold together the the way you know Nausicaa does does it you know like it's not it's not as coherent right it, many aspects of it are better than those older movies but it is just not coherent even even Totoro which seems like, isn't that just a scattershot nothing happens in that one it doesn't make any sense but it, it like it 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 holds together because it is so straightforward with the character setting plot theme like it's all it's all on the same page for the whole movie there is no point where uh, where uh, the house in Totoro is firebombed. <laughs> I think the corn pulls it together, too. <laughs> yeah. I have thoughts about The Wind Rises, but I'm going to save them for when we do that as an episode, which we will probably at some point, because we've got a few more Miyazaki movies to go, and it's one of mm-hmm. them. Also, I have thoughts about Ponyo, which is the other movie that is after this, which is 
Um, you want to jump off a cliff by the sea? Uh, yeah. That is a movie. <laughs> you make this movie, and then you're like, no, I just need to hide my head somewhere. I just need to bury my head in these set of pillows. That's right. What if I tell you about a love story between a, a person and a fish? Uh, mm-hmm. That would be fun. Anyway, that is for another time, because we will be back. There are more Miyazaki movies to talk about. But this is the end of this episode about Howl's Moving Castle. I'd like to thank my guests for being here. Steve Lutz, thank you. Thank you, Jason. This was really freaking weird. Yeah, it was. It was. I'm not surprised. Sometimes it's fun to watch something that's really weird. Uh, you put on a fake beard and go sell some magic things. I don't know. Uh, Shannon Sutter, thank you. Uh I was very happy to be here as well and watching a beautiful thing. It is. It is a beautiful thing. You have more beautiful Miyazaki movies in store for you, I think. Moises Chuyan, thank you. Jason, Grandpa's scaring me and I think I like it. <laughs> and uh, it's time for the fire spirit who it contains my heart, John Syracuse. Thank you. <laughs> I'm leaving, but uh, Pendragon and Jenkins are staying. <laughs> and thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We will see you again next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.